Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 29, the story of Ultimaker Cura. As part of our Ultimaker Turns 10 celebration this year, Talking Additive will be taking this episode and the next one, episode 30, to talk to some of the core team developers and product leads for Ultimaker Cura. Ultimaker Cura is an open source slicing application for 3D printers, initially created by engineer David Brom and continually developed by a dedicated team at Ultimaker, together with its community. For context, this software package is used by over 1 million users worldwide and has been cited as handling 1.4 million print jobs every week. This episode, episode 29, focuses on sharing with Talking Additive listeners the early story of Cura's rise to being one of the most widely adopted software tools in the additive manufacturing space. We will talk with James Van Kessel, software architect, Slicer platform at Ultimaker, Ruben Delec, software developer at Ultimaker, and Aldo Hoban, industrial designer, artist, and independent software developer at Field of View, who is a frequent contributor to the Cura project. In two weeks, episode 30, we'll build on this foundation to explore the role that Ultimaker Cura plays within Ultimaker's wider platform today, adding Digital Factory and the Marketplace to the story, as well as spotlighting a conversation with researcher Tim Kuypers about the Arachne Library that aims to introduce new capabilities for slicing into Ultimaker Cura for the benefit of all users. Covering the story of Ultimaker Cura has been the most frequently requested topic for Talking Additive since our launch last year, and it is with great pleasure that we bring you this pair of episodes as a finale to close out Season 3. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 29th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of almost 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to local manufacturing and digital distribution. Our first guest is James Van Kessel, software architect slicer platform at Ultimaker. He was the second software developer to be hired at Ultimaker and has played a critical role in establishing the architecture that now powers Ultimaker's platform strategy. I'm James Van Kessel and I am the software architect for uh, the slicer platform, aka Cura. I think the greatest trait an engineer can have is curiosity. It's also, I guess, why I got into engineering. I want to know how something works. I like finding out new things. I am not great at polishing things. I start something new. I get very enthusiastic about it. Then I convince a bunch of other people to also be enthusiastic about it. Then I spend a lot of time and effort on it in a very short amount of time. And then, you know, I start looking around to either a new project or I find a way to make whatever I'm doing right now more complicated. I'm not the guy who's gonna get the last 10% out of a product. I'm the kind of engineer that you call if the building's on fire. 
What took you from software engineering into digital fabrication? When, when did that happen? Yeah, digital fabrication, looking at it from a sideline, I was looking at, at like wrap wraps. It was like this sort of this sci-fi dream, like it would be really cool if I had it. But then knowing enough of myself to realize that I probably shouldn't, right? Start the project on my own. I would get like halfway, maybe two prints, and then I wouldn't. And yeah, so basically I got to Ultimaker purely on accident. A lot of major life decisions are just serendipity, I guess. And you know, Ultimaker was that. I was still living with my parents because uh, my, my parents actually live in Geldermalser where the Ultimaker R&D office is. And I was going to Utrecht, to university. So it's, it's 20 minutes by train. So like, why the hell would I get a room in Utrecht? They have a waiting list of like six, seven years or something. And it's prohibitively expensive. So I was doing the commute thing and then I saw this super hobo like copier paper with like Ultimaker that way on the railway station. And I, I think that jogged something in my mind because I, I realized that I was really confused of that being here. And I was like, really? In this place? Right? Because Gelemans is this sort of super rural town that only has like farmers and, and Bible thumpers. That's what Gelemans is. But I, I do know that I took a picture from it and I was in the train like l Googling this because, you know, I, I had to go to college. And I was like, what? This place that makes 3D printers in Geldermalse? It just, it was just conceptually so weird to me that like something that I saw as, you know, sort of at least, you know, moderately to, to, to high technology being in the middle of, of nowhere, really. So I was like, yeah, you know, uh, I just started university. So I was like, I, I could do it a side job. I already have my bachelor degree. It's better than, I don't know, being in a call center. So if it pays the same as is being in a call center was my, my logic, I get to play with 3D printers. I get to do coding. I'm going to chalk that up as a big win. So I was like, you know what? I got nothing to lose. I sent an email to them going like, you know what? This is me. This is the stuff that I did. I think it's super cool. Do you need somebody who's like super cheap? Because <laughs> <laughs> I want to work for you as a side job, but I do need a graduation thesis. So what do you say? Let, let's do this. I, I got an interview. Yeah, we talked uh, an hour about computer vision and scanning and all those kind of algorithms and uh, stuff like that. So we didn't even agree on anything. And he basically hired me right there on the spot. I mean, it panned out well. So then what was your experience in the early days of software development for Ultimaker? H how did that role start to take shape and what kind of activities did you do? Yeah, that... <laughs> That's a weird story, right? Because there was no plan. We just built something that we thought we needed or that people needed it. And then we just released that. And then if somebody said, hey, this is broken, we were like, oh, yes, indeed, that's broken. And then we made a fix. And then so sometimes we even had two or three unplanned releases in a day. That could happen. Like there, there wasn't a plan because, you know, all the customers were hobbyists and hobbyists were perfectly fine with the this doesn't work. And then you said, I'm right on it. And then two hours or three hours later that they have something that, well, isn't tested, but it may or may not remove their problem. And yeah. they were super cool with that, really. There was at least one round of rebasing when David joined Ultimaker, right? Yeah, yeah. So David was there when I started. He was also like there for, I don't know, two, three months or something in that ballpark. I, I don't know exactly, but... Not long. He wasn't there long. 
so when he started, it was called Cura, but it still had the Skyforge backend, right? So that was the moment where you still had to wait like as long as for slicing as it was to print it. Um, so Kira actually had a queue so that you could sort of queue slicing and then just you know, walk away and then, I don't know, like binge a Netflix series. I don't know, even Netflix was a thing back then. I mean, that was the state. So David was then at the point of rewriting it. And that, that was also still legacy Kira. And then at a certain point, we hired a, a good friend of mine was hired a, a while later, who uh, is also a software engineer that I knew from LARP. And at a certain point, he was also looking in it. And I was at that moment working on a structured light scanner and we were looking at it and we were like, you know what? Uh, the Kira code base is not really maintainable. It's, it's not going to work. We can't keep supporting this. This is not going to work. And David was actually on holiday when we did that. So uh, me together with Aryan, he, he just started like, so this was it like two days or three days in that he started or something. And we were like, what if we just went for a greenfield approach, right? What if we could disguise the limit? We can start all over. What would we do? So we just spent like days of frantically designing the architecture that we have now actually. And then Arm actually got really upset because we didn't involve David within it. Uh, and we were like, no, no, chill. We're, we're going to involve him. We just, you know, saw a problem. We want to fix it. It's going to be all right. And then David came back and, and he was, his response was basically in the ballpark of like, oh, finally somebody's trying to ask that, the thing that I tried to make. Because have both both me and Arjen actually uh, have a, a had a background in, in game development, which is actually super close to what Kieran does. Hey, you need a 3D scene and have the rendering and, and all of the logic. So we put a lot of the sort of design patterns from, from game engines and how you set them up in Kira. But David is actually, from his background, he was a firmware engineer. Yeah, he learned it the hard way, really. And he just built something... Again, without thinking about it, like, how am I going to use that in that time? Just like, we had a problem and he built a thing that solved the problem for him. And if somebody else profited from it, all the more power to them. That was his rationale to it. He was like, I'm willing to spend that time to fix the problem for me. And every extra person that also benefits, that's, right, that, that's a win. Because it's already a sunk cost. It was a sunk cost for him. Well, and if he shared it, then whatever. Then, yeah, we... Just started building on that. And then also the, the plugin structure of, of Kira was intentionally designed from the moment that we redesigned it. The plugin structure was not introduced in Kira 3.0. It was there all along. It was just that someone who wasn't an engineer understood what we did, realized the potential of this, asked us how the hell did you even get this through management? And we were like, they didn't even know what we were doing. <laughs> We just did whatever we thought was right. And we're very happy that you agree. And then, yeah, he realized that the power slash benefit from that actually started at least selling that inside of the company. So that's how that happened, right? It's, it's serendipity again. That sort of leads me to kind of a key key area to explore here. So there were a lot of, you know, a couple of you working really fast on, you know, developing this, putting it, giving some structure to it, yeah. finding ways to keep serving the kinds of needs you're coming in, which were very yeah. like vast. And so there was so much power under the hood, but yes, there, you, you might have had a, a plugin infrastructure in place, but was yeah. it documented? Did anybody know about it if you didn't read the code or was it? No, it was really read the code at that point. Yeah. We did write some guides on how to do it. Yeah. But if you want to get like the most of it, you really needed to, to, to look into yeah. the code. Which was possible. And, and it's definitely one of the things that I want to improve. I'm ecstatic with the whole platform vision. And in all honesty, we didn't make the decision to become a platform. We just wanted it so the code would become more maintainable. And we understood that we were in a market where we could not predict what was going on. So above all, we needed mobility. 
We needed flexibility and mobility and we wanted adoption. And that's why we went for a plugin structure with a very extensive and, and complex system and thus powerful system to add new machines. Those were basically our main uh, design points that we had. And basically, you know, that led to therefore then plugins and then that led then to a platform strategy. Tell me a little bit about the history of the development of Cura Engine. And, and in general, the every Slicer project up until that time in desktop 3D printing, you, you, the original legacy project had used Skyforge. But Ultimaker ended up having a very exciting and very impressive Slicer. But that's the thing. David had no knowledge about geometrical algorithms. And, and he just did it by just looking very well at what Skeenforge was doing and going like, that's ridiculous. I can do it better. But yeah, I think David has this sort of insane, like this common sense superpower, I, I would say. Like he can code insanely fast. I'm fast in coding, but he's super fast. So he could churn out these things in a pace that I was having trouble keeping up. And then the rest of the engineers, they were like, nope, nope. When you came on to Ultimaker, the, the notion that Cura would play the role that it now plays was probably not super clear. Nobody would have expected that. Nobody. In all honesty, like the reason that we made the plugins, it was more of a like a what if. If it ever reaches there, ha 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 ha, then at least we're prepared for that because it's the only way that we can prepare for it. Why is it important for Ultimaker to have this software component. You might have a really great product, but a product is only really great if people are using it. As a, as a young developer, I always hated the term enterprise architecture, but I, 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 I am strong enough to admit that, I, that my hatred for that was somewhat unfounded because you do need to think about how a product is going to fit within an existing organization or workflow and that is what enterprise architecture is and that is also where i think our ecosystem can do it because no enterprise is the same and if you look at all these erp systems like a uh, uh, sap there's a reason we have this many sap consultants and that no matter how powerful your software is it doesn't matter you will always need that custom work because everybody has their weird little things about their field or their company or the way that a process is done or and that that needs custom work thanks again to jame next up is ruben delek a software developer who was another early hire for ultimaker who has been with the cura team for the past six years you might also recognize him from his contributions on github and in the ultimaker community as ghostkeeper so first of all, thank you so much for joining for talking out of today. Yeah, nice. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. My name is Ruben and my role is a, a software developer for Cura. I've been in the Cura team for a long time, so I've done a lot of work for Cura. Let's start with some questions about your background and leading into Ultimaker and your very first days there. So how did you first encounter 3D printing? I encountered 3D printing at Ultimaker first. I, I rolled into Ultimaker through my graduation project at the university. I was an intern at Ultimaker for almost a year, working on a different project. But uh, yeah, th that project didn't really turn out to be uh, marketable as a product. And I ended up working at the Cura team afterwards when that project was, was canceled after my graduation. So I, I, I rolled into it uh, basically through my studies. Yeah. What were you studying 
uh, at university before joining for the internship at Ultimaker? I did uh, two studies there. I did an artificial intelligence study, which is very slightly related, but there's that's where I learned to, to program properly. And then I did a game and media technology. And game and media technology, you can go into two directions, basically. You could go into the game technology or you could go into the media technology. And I went more into the media technology, which means that you did simulation and computer vision, that sort of thing. And through the computer vision, I got into uh, Ultimaker, which which had some projects with computer vision at the start. Yeah, and that's the that's basically my transition to Ultimaker. I did have one course about geometric algorithms in game and media technology as well, but it happened to be my worst uh, course uh, there, and that's what I ended up doing after after all. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, I think a lot of us we ha we have only the merest hint of of what we'll end up focusing on. When we're studying things. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm, I, I'm still good at it anyway. Yeah. So when you started the internship at Ultimaker, were you, were you quickly identifying that this is a, a great context for you? I know you were working on a project there that ended up not being sort of a branch of the business, uh, though all the people involved with it have contributed a lot to Ultimaker. Yeah. I, when I started working at Ultimaker, I really liked the open atmosphere that it was uh, a lot about collaboration and the innovative uh, business that they were in. 3D printing in general is, is a lot of fun. And uh, especially back then, uh, a lot of people were very much onto the open source ideas. And that's what I really liked about it. So that's why I kept working on it. And that's also why I still like working in Cura because it's still open source. Mm, yeah, fantastic. Now, w what was the location when you joined? Uh, I think that we identified that you're around seven years in? Yes, um, I worked here for seven years, since 2014. And it's a bit of a weird question because when I had my first interview, it was in a different location than when I actually started. The first interview was in an old school building. And uh, by the time that I actually got started, we the R&D department had moved to a separate building just across the, the railway. So you got a little uh, snapshot of kind of key moments in early... Ultimaker history that not all of your peers would experience because I obviously the, the team was quite small until it started to grow over in the, the Heldermalsen location uh, that followed. Yeah, when I started, there were three or four software engineers. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's amazing. So I've been talking with a, a number of the early first year employees about their experiences at the you know agricultural school building and Got some really amazing stories captured that way, including just the the general sense when folks arrive that oh okay this this seems great this is it's really cheap it's really big we really only need these two rooms, <laughs> followed you know by uh, you know over a year and a half I think of building out repairing the boilers getting the electric electricity elements you know, fixed and, and updated the the leaks the you know removing the kitty plastic swimming pools that were preventing leaks from collapsing the floor. And then filling out the space entirely to the point that Bart told a story of needing to wheel things out of the production area each morning so that people could actually enter the building. So you were there briefly as R&D was racing out of there to, to make sure that they had enough space to work and yeah. then got to be a part of the coming back together of all the um, R&D units in the Helderbalsen location that is still active. Do you want to tell uh, a about your ex first experiences seeing that space and what it was like? 
Yeah, that's space. The first experience that you get is that, uh, wow, this is a long hallway because the entire building is one long hallway, uh, more or less. Uh, we expanded now into a separate uh, room just beside it as well. But generally, the building was uh, very nice because it was so much more spacious. We really needed that space. Ultimaker has grown very fast, especially back then. I think there was one year where we tripled in the number of employees, which was so uh, yeah, game-changing in, in every way. The facilities itself were uh, sometimes lacking, like it's always very warm in there, but you make do. They improved that over time. Well, I mean, you say it was really warm in there, but like it can, in continuation of Ultimaker's tendency to take a space and then fill it entirely, that long hallway filled up completely. And as you mentioned, this, the space next to it, the, did you experience much of the era of the porta cabins in the big warehouse space? There uh, were two places where Ultimaker placed these porta cabins. It was in the warehouse, but also outside of the warehouse on the far side. And there outside of the warehouse on the far side, that's where my team was located, the Cura team, and also quite all of the other software teams at some point. And that is actually, that was one of the nicest locations of the mall because just outside there was the windmill there and there were sheep outside that were blaring all the time. And it was funny, also a bit distracting, but it was a really nice location. <laughs> I, I always loved uh, visiting that. When I started with Cura, the uh, the team included, I think, five people, or it was four, but briefly after became five. And the, there was one person that uh, that would uh, do all of the work on Cura Engine, the slicing backend of Cura. And then there was uh, a, a very good architect that set up all of the, the, the front-end stuff, like make it very extensible and well-developed for a long-term support. And basically, that was the idea. Yeah, and, and another one that did uh, miscellaneous things uh, on the front end. And I would be somewhat of a person that did both of these things, the, the front end and the back end. And that, I think, was a really good choice for me specifically, because that made me the person uh, uh, that knows everything about everything and would be a link between the two worlds. It was also very important because back then we also started doing code reviews, so you would need at least two persons on the back end. So that's, uh, that, that was important. After you arrived, what were the Cura releases to set this in the talking additive uh, listener's mind of where in the era of Ultimaker this was? So when I started with the Cura team, we were working on version 15.10. So that is the, basically the first version that had the new interface uh, and the new, new front end side. This was still in the special R&D building that we were in temporarily, but shortly after we moved to the big uh, long hallway building that we are at now, and that that was 15.6 was the last version that, that had the original front-end code base. 15.10 uh, was the first version that had the new one. Just a bit later is when we started to transition to the version numbering that we have now. The version numbering uh, that we have now allowed us to communicate better what sort of release we would have. That was the idea. Then around the time of Cura 2.0 and Cura 2.1, and there is never a 2.2, but there was 2.3. So that around that time, that's also when Ultimaker released the Ultimaker 3, Dual Extrusion Machine. And that was the big focus of the time that we would be supporting Dual Extrusion. 
Now, at that stage, were there many plugins? Or let's let's say it this way. I know there were a few plugins. Were most of them developed by the core team and like close allies that are community developers that, that really knew exactly what was going on? Or were, were there also some unexpected plugins starting to arrive? At that time, it was even worse than what you say. Most of the plugins, actually almost all of the plugins were in Cura itself and shipped with Cura. The very first external pl plugin was one that... I eventually ended up developing myself uh, is the X3G writer. It's the very oldest external plugin that there is, and it's still supported. It's something for MakerBot type firmwares that need a different output format than G-Code. And yeah, it's, it's just converting it from G-Code to that format. And I eventually took it over because someone is asking, hey, the legacy Cura had this uh, thing and how can I make it work with the new one? So I developed that plugin then, and that was the first external one. And it wasn't until version 2.7 or so that there were also more other external plugins developed by the community. And then, so one related question to that, at the time that you joined, there were already a couple of other hardware vendors that had licensed the use of Cura that they would rescan for their systems. D yeah. Did you ever have any involvement in any of those projects? Uh, well, there was one. Aleph Objects had their own version of Cura and they maintained that for quite a long time. And in their version, they also developed new features and they would be so nice to contribute those features back to us. Uh, most of the of those reskins of Cura are just reskins and they, they don't really add a lot of things. They sometimes delete a bunch of printers that they don't use or they add their own profiles and that sort of stuff. But Aleph Objects actually developed some new features. And one of those, for instance, was the ability to load in G-code files and show a G-code file on the build plate without slicing an object. Uh, and that's a feature that I am really thankful for them for because uh, it's used very often today. Mm. I think that those just entering 3D printing today might not remember how collaborative the whole space was in, in the earlier days. And it, it remains, if you if you play nice, like we continue to, you can still continue to collaborate. But yeah, the, the Aleph Object team at that time, they did a, a extensive work in providing you know, training and, and, and showing ways to use Cura. Right. It was a great service to the community as a whole. And it was nice to have a, a, a peer in the space that was using the tool and giving back, like you're saying. Yeah, yeah, we still get a lot of contributions, but not a lot from uh, people who have their own official uh, Cura version, but uh, more from the community itself. So then let's step into the third era of Ultimaker Cura, as we discussed it, mm -hmm. with the introduction of Marketplace and the a little bit wider encouragement for plugin development and that, that sort of thing. What was different? What was unique about the Cura 3.6? release from your perspective? The Cura's 3.6 release was when Ultimaker really started developing their platform. Ultimaker, Cura already had their extensibility, so it was designed in a way such that this would be possible. But from 3.6 onwards was when basically the rest of Ultimaker was also on board with that idea. Uh, so we would get more marketing content towards these features and Ultimaker would actively look for partners uh, to to develop this platform further. And that that was, uh, I think, a big difference in that stage. This was when we created stable APIs for Cura instead of 
oh, you can just call any function and you're tough out of luck if we change it. So this enabled people to really make plugins and keep them, keep maintaining them indefinitely. And also, of course, there's the material alliance that started back then. So that's when Ultimaker started using other companies to create profiles for their printers, which is, I think, a very good thing. It certainly made a really big difference in terms of our movement into the industrial and professional space right. and our alliances with those material providers who were really looking for a good way to get their materials into the hands of those engineers and designers. Looking in terms of the like the plugins and the API, when this marketplace launched, there were a bunch of options in there and some familiar names for providers of the various plugins. Do you want to talk about some of the ones that were included there? And I know some of them were from core staff, some of them were ex-staff, and some of them were other just really devoted community developers who brought their own capabilities and, and contributions. Yeah, there were a few plugins from Jame and me. We had our plugins that we maintained ourselves. I think Jame had his Barbarian Units plugin to convert inches to, uh, to millimeters. And I had my X3G writer, which wasn't used very often. But there were in particular two community contributors who uh, maintained a couple of plugins for a very long time. And they were both ex-Ultimaker employees. Uh, one was uh, Topicar and the other Field of View. Both of these had uh, a lot of plugins and were actively developing new ones, like the CAT integration tools from, from Topicar. And uh, Field of View had a bunch of various things that he thought uh, people would like. Yeah, those are very good to develop the platform from the start. Yeah. I remember seeing those lists and, and one of the things that was really interesting from an end user perspective, but what I wanted to, to mention is that looking at that catalog of solutions and, and how each one would draw your attention to another way to use Cura or a way to solve a very specific problem, like maybe integrate with something very specifically, it, it reminded people of how flexible a tool Cura is and the kinds of things that could be explored. What were some of the things that you saw people using Cura for? in that time that you thought were very exciting? I especially like the people who try to experiment with 3D printing in uncommon ways, making molds for silicone molding or that sort of stuff, or like chocolate is also a very good way to, to use molds. We also had a 3D printer that was added to Cura the Moai Piopoli, which is not actually an FFF printer. And those are very nice to see that the people try to innovate using Cura in a different way that, that we, we don't expect. And eventually the mold feature made it into Cura uh, as well. That's actually good context for this discussion. In Cura, there is an aspect of reviewing a lot of community contributions and also specific elements that people wanted to try out both within the team and without. So there's been that experimental section for all the, the various tools that you can activate that really require a little bit more advanced knowledge, or at least it's, it's more up to you to troubleshoot it and support it. What's the history of the experimental options? The experimental options are options that we'd like to develop and experiment with, but that we don't really think are uh, fit yet to use by default or to actually make, make prints with. If you 
want just want your print to come out nice. So there are features that we like to develop and we think they are stable, but we are not that confident with yet to actually make it a default. That's the way we think about it. And sometimes there are settings in the experimental section that we developed at some point, but it never gets any attention anymore because there's no priority for these things. We have a lot on our plate and yeah, we can't develop all of them. Uh, I wanted to highlight a couple of them that you're, were directly involved with, like, like tree support, for example. Yeah. Do you want to tell the story of tree supports? Yeah, tree support came from a research sprint. That was uh, something that we had uh, a while ago regularly, is that we would have two weeks uh, where the developers could could develop anything that they thought was uh, going to be useful for Ultimaker. So instead of having it top-down pushed on you what we were going to develop, we would yeah, create our own things that we thought were useful. And tree support was my choice. It's been requested quite often to have something like that. And it came out more successful than I initially thought. I had a breakthrough at some point where I managed to get all of the tree branches to line up very nicely. And then it was very stable and strong and it supported the object well. And it was actually quite a great success. Yeah, a lot of people liked it too. The only thing is that it takes a lot of time to compute. Talk a little bit about the interaction with the developer community for receiving pull requests and for features, bug fixes, integrations, mm -hmm. plugins. What was that like during that era? That era was, was one period where the community grew a lot around Ultimaker. And uh, that came with also more bug reports and more feature requests from the community in general. That's when it started to be quite a significant time investment to even process all of them. That is something that we still struggle with today. We have a technical community manager that does most of these things, but still there's a lot of involvement from the developers themselves because yeah, things need to be investigated, bug reports need to be investigated. And so we are still directly involved with, with the community in that way too. And, and you're using GitHub as one aspect of that, right? Yeah, GitHub has uh, their issues pages. That's where I spend more than an hour per day to 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 read these things. So they call it uh, bug triaging. You, you need to decide on, hey, is this a bug uh, or is the user maybe doing something weird or wrong? It's not understanding. And if they don't understand it, how can we make it easier to understand? Uh, we need to decide on what is the priority of, of these bugs then and when are we going to fix them? I would imagine the volume would be pretty high. The volume um, is pretty high, yeah. 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 A lot of people just submit bugs and we can usually recognize pretty quickly that, oh, this is the same issue as like he's using an Apple M1 computer and that's not supported yet. So uh, we can recognize that and consolidate all of the conversations into one single thread so that uh, it's easier to track them. But in some cases, there's just nothing we can really do. Recently, I, I read about an issue that's, hey, Cura doesn't recognize OpenGL supports when I use a remote desktop to, to, hmm. to interface with Cura. And then, yeah, there's nothing we can really do because Cura really needs OpenGL support. And yeah, you just don't meet our system requirements. Hmm. We can't really do anything about it. And yeah, we can leave it open or we close it. But those are the, the, the difficult ones. Yeah, we don't really know because yeah, there's no real solution. So how many of, of you all on the developer side look at the 
GitHub issues, requests, and, and things from the community? I, I am by far, I think, the most active of them, at least until we had our technical community manager. Uh, it started at the beginning of this year. Uh, but all of us look at it from time to time. Uh, almost all of us, I think. Uh, we, we do look at it from time to time. But I am the one that really tries to, to make sure that everyone gets attention. And there, yeah, a lot of people just go through it in the morning, the most recent ones. Yeah. So what is it like working on a product like Ultimaker Cura that has so many active versions out in the world? Because some people are clinging on to mm-hmm. versions from the past and a huge range of hardware, both systems to run it. The printers. And an actual hardware for printers. Yeah. yeah. What's that like? There's three different things there. There's the old versions that people are still using. We are not really bothered with that. They can keep using that if they like. That's fine with us. I would like them to use our new features because we think they are useful for them. But if they encounter too many issues with the new releases, that's fine with me. But then there's uh, the, the other two things like platform support is a big issue, especially uh, like we have a couple of Windows users and a couple of Linux users in our development team, but we have no Mac developers at the moment. Uh, and so if there's any issue with Macintosh, then we need to try and guess what the fix would be and then build it and see if any testers can confirm that it's fixed. Uh, but those are really difficult and they are usually some of the mo- most difficult issues that we have. Like, hey, it, the rendering doesn't work on this and this computer. It doesn't work with the NVIDIA graphics cards or maybe the Intel chips are giving an error in this in this case. Uh, those are the very difficult, most difficult ones. The printer support is not so difficult. Uh, they, they, they are maintained by other people. We just need to make sure that they don't break and, and that's going pretty well. Yep, that makes sense. Now we have the fourth era, which we've we've already sort of been going into in the last couple of minutes, the the current era of Cura, where there is a little bit more of an emphasis on platform integration, obviously made possible before this, but now really as a central like narrative for Cura, and also the entering of a uh, and uh, deeper integration of cloud tools more work on sort of evangelizing the APIs and things like this. Why don't you introduce us to what is unique about you know, this time period in Cura's history? This is a time period where we really try to make sure that Cura remains stable for uh, everyone. We also have a lot of emphasis on security recently because Ultimaker provides this, this enterprise edition for the, they have the software package of enterprise, which includes a number of things like more support on having teams in, in the cloud or that sort of stuff. But it also includes basically a lockdown version of Cura where you can't install any plugins that haven't been security reviewed. And that also means that plugins need to be security reviewed. For instance, the settings guide needs to get reviewed by a third party, even though that is not something that Ultimaker develops in-house. Uh, so yeah, we, we have a lot of emphasis on security. I think that's the most important change for us. And of course, we need to keep up to date with new features in the cloud as well. And so, uh, so another team is really focused on digital factory and digital library, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a different team, but we are, of course, directly involved with them. Yeah. 
I figured. I want to ask some more questions about that, but actually I, I want to make sure we do not miss one of my favorite plugin in all of Cura's history, which is your settings guide. Now, introduce talking additive uh, audiences to this, because I, I think that many people, when they discover it, and the kind of treasure trove of best practices and advice to really help people understand Cura, they they can't imagine that it's not like a very large project created by Ultimaker, and they don't yeah. know that it's something the labor of love that you've created. Yeah, I'm not the only one that created it. It has it was created uh, originally as uh, also as a research project in Ultimaker. Uh, and then they set up this interface and they had a number of articles, which are the same articles as the ultimaker.com website. There were like 50 articles in there for various settings, but the, the settings guide is a guide that's, that is meant to help people understand the Cura settings, what they do and how you would use them. And this is, uh, I think very important as a documentation that is often lacking in Cura itself. It's drawn from my own expertise for the most part. I've, I've written all of the current articles in there. And yeah, I have, over the course of working at Ultimaker, I've drawn a lot of expertise from all of the materials engineers that, that work at Ultimaker. We have a lot of in-house expertise and I, I have that in my head. And I, so I try to write it down as best as I can. Uh, it's well, a labor it's a... of love. Yeah, it has uh, hundreds of hours in there. I think it's a fantastic project. I, I, I always recommend the people who want to do serious work in Cura and really understand their slicing decisions and some of the best practices you have for troubleshooting, that they, they install it and, and make use of it. Uh, I know I've, I've, I've read it essentially cover to cover a couple of times over its history. Oh, that's uh, it just, uh, significant. It's, well, it's gold if you're training people on how to use Cura. It's fantastic. And one of the things I wanted to highlight is there are a number of settings where maybe, you know, the terminology is either specific to Ultimaker Cura or is, as a lot of these things, in wider use, but only within those who really understand slicing and advanced pathing. And they, they don't, it's not necessarily something that uh, is intuitive for somebody who encounters those words. So in the past, what what I would do, what many people would do when they really wanted to understand something, for example, the, the modifier meshes mm -hmm. being, a, being a key example, is you'd, you'd read the code. You'd go and you'd, you'd, uh, you would open the, you know, very readable Python scripts that had extensive comments in there. And you'd mm -hmm. see like little notes, like, you know, how are you supposed to use this? And, you know, and what, what connects to what? You've not only done a better job, you offer things like side-by-side -side comparisons of what the effects would be for making some selections. Visualization and that, uh, is really important, yeah. That's really been very helpful. So I thank you for your hundreds of hours of work in your free time to oh, do this. You're welcome. It's, it, it's something that I really love doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so why do you love to do it? What, what, what are you hoping to accomplish by doing this work? I love doing it because I think it is very useful for people to know about and read. I think it's, it's, some, it's a bit of the engineer's pride that people use the, their products uh, properly and they know how to use it and pe people like to use it. And I think this is one thing that's, that helped with that is that, that people know how to use Cura better. That, that was the whole point of it really is that it was started by someone else, one of the Cura pe people, and he saw that and he left the company after just finishing that, that uh, settings guide. And yeah, I, I saw that that doesn't, 
that can't go to waste that work. So I needed to continue that project. Well, that, that takes us to a moment of reflection on, on your time at Ultimaker. Looking back at what Ultimaker Cura does, both you know, for, for the company and its customers, but also the 3D printing community as a whole, what are some, some thoughts you have about what it's meant for you contributing to Cura all these years? Yeah, Cura is, uh, is uh, something that I really have a heart for now. It's, yeah, it's hard to let go, even during vacations and stuff. If you see something that is going wrong, I use uh, Cura as well when I print stuff for myself here. And I would often like, hey, uh, something really is, is a bit weird here. Maybe I can raise an issue or <laughs> fix it myself, some, something like that. So Cura has been a big influence on my life for the past past years in general. And I, 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 liked, I like how Cura has, has grown in popularity and how Ultimaker has guided the Cura project as well, for the most part, at least. And I can see that there are still a lot of things that we can improve and I, I really need to improve them. <laughs> That's the, again, the engineer's pride that you really want to have a, a good product. So going forward into the, the second decade of Ultimaker's history and the second decade of professional desktop 3D printing in general, what do you hope will be explored, continued, added in the Ultimaker Cura space? I really hope that we get better control over the printing process. That is still one of the big uh, unknowns and it will remain unknown for a long time, but yeah, we sort of know how the material flows out of the nozzle, but there are so many effects there, like different materials shrinking or flowing differently through the nozzle chamber. And yeah, this is a, this is a big problem for dimensional accuracy of your prints and also strength and that sort of stuff. And that's, that's the thing that we really need to get under control. And that's what I hope that Cura will focus on in the future and also Ultimaker in general. So Ruben, I want to thank you again for being on Talking Ad. If this was a really illuminating discussion. It, it was a very fun experience to, to be interviewed like this. It's nice. <laughs> Thanks again to Ruben. Our final guest for Talking Ad episode 29 is Aldo Hoban, an industrial designer, artist, and independent software developer at Field of View. While he did work for Ultimaker's Cura team in the past, he has also made a large number of significant contributions in the form of authoring plugins, as well as bug fixes, and even core functionality for Cura in the four years after he left. And he is a shining example of the rich participation in this open source developer community. I'm Aldo Huben. On the Ultimaker forums, I'm known as A Huben. On GitHub, I'm now known as Feel of You. Feel of You is my company. Um, I'm trained as an industrial designer. I'm officially an industrial design engineer. So that's designing and engineering sort of means that I know a little about a lot and a lot about a little. And then I specialized in experience design, so interaction design. I started to do a company based on that, but because I get bored when I do the same thing for a long time. I do many different things. And I've veered off the real engineering and the real design and also do a lot of art projects. And it was in the art projects where I started to become interested in 3D printing and got involved with Ultimaker. And from my 
needs in in the software and the hardware, I started to develop a software and plugins, and that's what I'm now known for in the community. As a curious visual artist, I purchased my first 3D printer, Ultimaker Original. Before it was called an Ultimaker Original, it was just the Ultimaker. I put it together with a friend in a day and was amazed that it did anything at all. It really was was great for my curiosity and to tinker with things. And it, I, I was just looking at what I could do with it. I was in a luxury uh, that I could enter this this big experiment. But within a year, I was doing commissions that I couldn't have done otherwise because I've, I've always been an ID man. So I could always come up with great ideas, but I was never good enough in model making that I could execute on all those ideas. There was always a subsection of things that I could do and things that I couldn't do, lots of things that I couldn't do. And now with a 3D printer, I could do them. And that was very liberating. But my that initial uh, Ultimaker printer was limited. I didn't have unlimited funds, so I bought the, the cheapest kit without a controller. So I had to use USB printing. And that became a problem quickly because computers crash and if you have a crashing computer halfway, a print is gone. So I started looking into Octoprint on a very small computer, the first Raspberry Pis, and really liked that I could print with it and not have my computer tied up to printing. And then I started looking at improving the workflow, going from Cura to Octoprint to the printer. And that's how I got into, well, looking into hooks into the Cura application to see if I could improve things. And just about the time that started to work, there was this huge new version being released which was uh, the total rewrite of Cura, which was exciting because it was much more pluginable with my background as a interaction designer. I had some remarks to make. But the cool thing was, is that Cura is open source. So I could get into direct contact with the uh, developers on GitHub, made some re remarks did some suggestions, but also started to fix little issues on GitHub. And then I got a call. I got a call from Ultimaker and they asked me if I'd like to come over for a cup of coffee, which was a very smart thing for them to ask. But because if they'd asked me to come work for them straight away, I, I would have said no, because I, I have my own company thing. I'm not looking for a job. But yeah, it turned out I, I got to meet the team and it was really nice to meet the team. And I decided let's just give it a go. Let's see if I can work for a long time for a single on a single project. And that project turned into a year. It was the year before the Ultimaker 3 was launched. And there was a lot of work to be done from that initial release of the totally rewritten Cura into something that was 
good enough to be shipped with the Ultimaker 3. Worked on, on Cura for a year at Gildermalsen. A really intense but very nice year. Even so, after that year, I my fingers started to itch. So I really wanted to do other projects as well. So I left uh, Ultimaker, but Cura is still open source. So I could continue working on Cura as a external contributor again. And that meant that I could do some of the things that I also wanted to do during that year, but just didn't get around to. Because the the Ultimate Cura team is a, is a great team and extremely passionate, but there's so much to do in so little time. Um, so that they don't get around to doing everything. I don't get around to doing everything, but now that I'm not officially part of that team and not working to Ultimaker's roadmap, I could spend time on it myself. And yeah, I could execute on, on part of the vision that I had for that year working there that I couldn't while I was working for Ultimaker. And I think that's worked out nicely for Ultimaker and for me. Well, I definitely agree from the standpoint of when Ultimaker looks at the the plugins coming through from the community. They're usually mm -hmm. looking at your work and saying, this is ideal. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the way, it's more than, than plugins. Humble brag. Since leaving the team, I've made around 200 fixes and features that are just part of Cura itself. So outside of the plugins. Uh, the plugins are more a way that I can do things that, that Ultimaker may not be interested in itself. The well, biggest example there is the Octoprint plugin. Octoprint could be seen as a competing technology to the digital factory. So there's no need for Ultimaker to put time into that, uh, but I can. There are a lot of ties between Octoprint and, and Ultimaker in both directions. Octoprint was originally based on Cura, though there's not a single line of code of it left. But it's yeah. originally a version of Cura. In the other direction as well, when I was working at uh, Ultimaker, they were starting uh, to do the first experiments with, with printer farms. And obviously, the first iterations there were also based on, on Octoprint before the Cura Connect, later Ultimaker Connect, uh, got built into the, the Ultimaker 3 and later print. This is really exciting introduction. I, I want to ask you about some of your specific contributions. I've already spoken about the open source nature of, of Cura, but I also think that I should keep spending the huge amount of time that I spend on the project for free because that's basically what I do when I make my plugins, when I contribute to the, to the project. I spend a huge amount of time. And the, my main reason for doing that is because I like doing it. But fortunately, uh, there are people that see what I do and ask me to do specific things. For example, companies like Black Belt asked me to make a special version of Cura to support their special printers. And fortunately, I can make a living with 
projects like that. Not everybody can do that, and not everybody is willing to make the gamble that there will be a project somewhere down the, the road. But for me, that's how I live, how I do my things. I execute on my ideas, and then projects come along where I can earn some money to continue doing that. Is that innovation? I don't know. I do new things all the time. But for me, that, that business aspect is what I just don't like. And some people will not take me seriously because of that. But then again, I don't know if I take myself seriously. So I don't mind. Your generosity and passion for engaging in open source development, in real community development, really contributing stuff and being responsive to, you know, when people are asking questions, your cumulative projects, your contributions to software, your plugins, your other projects, it's really brought about a huge swarm of activity even beyond what, what you do. It's easiest and obvious to point to the plugins because they have your name on them, but there's a lot of capabilities that might not have a champion if you weren't in there. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm very happy the way you explained that. I'm happy I'm on any positive list. And it sounds a bit uh, full of myself, but I think I, I belong on the list as well. I think if we're talking about anything related to innovation, it, it must really be about the open source mindset here. And in that way, I should say I'm, I'm not the only person working with passion on this project, but I, I think I was one of the, the first ones on this project. And in a way that shows that, in a way, I think I was sort of a, a pioneer. The way it works with pioneering is you put someone there and it has some sort of a magnetic function. Uh, so, for example, uh, early Cura did not have support for um, for a number of releases. That was the first thing that everybody on uh, on Reddit asked. Uh, does it support Delta printers yet? So I just decided I don't have a Delta printer, but I'll add support for Delta printers because that was something Ultimaker would never ever do because just didn't have time and energy to put there uh, because Ultimaker doesn't have Delta printers. But I, I figured, well, just to silence all those people, uh, it, doesn't, it still doesn't have Delta printers. I add support for Delta printers. And then uh, Ultimaker had support for Delta printers. And what happened then was someone in England, uh, Mark Burton, also known as uh, Smart Avionics, or Burtugel on the on the forum happened on to Cura, which supports Delta printers, because he only had a Delta printer. So if Cura wouldn't have had Delta printers, then he would have skipped Cura. And he has also made tremendous contributions to Cura, more from the engine side, whereas I do most of my work on the front end. Mm. So it's um feel that I have that pioneering function in Cura. I was wondering if you might be willing to talk about your 
background in you know, action design and and the, the ways in which that is how you're uh, adjusting on the front end the experience of Cura, but there's also your understanding of people and understanding how to participate and identify targets for things to, to bring into the community development ecosystem. I was wondering if you might speak to that because you provide a lot of leadership there that is really helpful to setting the tone for why the development the community development ecosystem for Cura is positive and, and productive. Cura is used by a lot of people. And Cura is used in different ways by a lot of different people with different printers, with different types of models, with different ecosystems. And it's being developed by Ultimaker for also lots of different people with different workflows, different models. Ultimaker product management for, for Cura did come up with a number of different target users, target uh, workflows. And so that's what Ultimaker Cura gets developed for. But in the wide, very wide community of users, there are lots of people that have different uh, workflows, who use different types of models. So they have different needs. And because I started to become very involved into the different communities where it's used, I, I hear other voices than the more enterprise market that, that Ultimaker currently focuses more towards. When I bought my first Ultimaker printer, it was geared very much towards enthusiasts still. It was a wooden printer. It had, had a toy robot on the sides. Now Ultimaker is a really different company. So I, I fully understand why they changed their focus. It would not make sense from a business standpoint to try to compete with Chinese companies which is what you'd need to do if you still wanted to do the, the enthusiast market. But there are still a lot of people from that enthusiast market that, that use Cura. And I'm in the sort of unique position that I know a lot about the internals of, of Cura and that I can support some of those more enthusiast needs that in turn also turn out to be useful for some enterprise users. Many of the things that Ultimaker does for enterprise users also end up benefiting still those prosumers. It's still a, a nice ecosystem of different target groups, but it's clear that are, there are shifting focuses here and there. There are still a great amount of innovation happening at uh, universities or or startups that start in, in universities with PhD projects, where Cura is an awesome starting point because it is open, because it can be adapted for very special types of 3D printing, like I did with, with Black Belt Cura. But yeah, a really different types of printing that need a different type of adaptation of this of slicer software and writing slicer software from scratch 
is a very big task. So Curize is used a lot in really innovative ways. How are you using 3D printing today in your, your current work? Yeah, um, like I said at the start of this conversation, I do an awful lot of different things because if I do something for too long, then I don't like it anymore. I use my 3D printers a lot for testing when I do software development, but I still also do use, actually use my 3D printers for aesthetic parts. I'm a visual artist. For functional parts, if I do something with a, a screen that needs to be hung from a wall, I could buy a part, but I can also print my own visa mounts. I print tools for when I need to do a installation. It's really all that all the things that I could never do before I had a 3D printer. Make things. I could only make things in a computer before, and now I can actually make physical things in really yeah, very different ways. And that's very liberating. Name some of the contributions that you've made to, uh, to, to the Cura ecosystem. My biggest plugin without question is the Octoprint integration into, into Cura, which I'm, I'm very proud of. It was the, the first plugin that had 100,000 downloads. It's now almost at half a million downloads, which is mind-boggling. It's used to print thousands of prints a day. I've been told one and a half year ago, so it's only grown since then. That's in a way mind-boggling. It's also interesting that the only metric that I have of its use is the downloads of the plugin. So I have no idea how much it gets used, uh, but I know it's a lot. My plugins accumulated have, have crossed uh, a million uh, downloads this year, which is also humbling. And that's about 40% is this one plugin. I'm also very proud as a user interface designer, as an interaction designer, that my alternative, uh, the standard user interface, is finding uh, traction. It's also more than... 100,000 downloads and that that gives me pride because it sort of vindicates some of my ideas and things that I was still working on and was passionate about when I left Ultimaker four years ago. So yeah, it's good to see that there are people that agree with my ideas there. That's a perfect answer. I love it. Thank you so much for joining on Talking Additive. Uh, I was really happy to get to include you in our podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you again to Aldo, Ruben, and James for joining us today. We hope that you enjoyed our 29th episode for the Talking Additive podcast, The Story of Ultimaker Cura. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag TalkingAdditive, all one word. Coming up next Tuesday, catch our latest in a series of bi-weekly Ultimaker Turns 10 mini-episodes. 
And two weeks' time, on August 3rd, we return with episode 30, the second part of our story of Ultimaker Cura and the finale for Talking Additive Season 3. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thank you again to Jame, Ruben, and Aldo. Also David Brom, the Ultimaker Cura team, and community contributors and users of Cura Worldwide. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.